0: Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. If you can, Please open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, as John answers the question, how do we help someone who has lost hope? I want to talk to you today about hope, and more specifically, what to do when you feel like you Have lost hope. Now, I know that sounds like a gloomy subject, and it maybe is a little bit gloomy when we think about the hopelessness part of that, but when we think about finding our hope in God, uh, there's nothing gloomy about that at all. Now, the thing about this sermon today that I'm excited about is the relevance of the sermon. As I was studying hope last week and hopelessness, I learned some things that I did not know. I learned that it's a bigger problem in our culture than I realized it was. For example, I read that, according to one study, 44% of teenagers today, this is this group right here, 44% of teenagers are sad and hopeless. That's a discouraging statistic. It's worse for the girls in that group. Almost 60% of girls say, teenage girls, say that they persistently feel sad or hopeless. And so girls, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today, but I wonder how many today in this section of girls and guys would say, that describes me. I feel sad and I I feel hopeless. But it's not just for teenagers. As I read about young adults this week, that age group 18 to 24, listen to this, 25% of people in that age group have considered committing suicide. One out of four 18 to 24-year-olds have considered ending their life. As they get a little bit older, take it up to 29, 51% of young adults, 18 to 29, say that they feel down, depressed, and hopeless. 51%. Over half of the young adults in America today say that they have these feelings of sadness and hopelessness and depression and so we're thinking today about about hope and hopelessness. Now, before we understand what hopelessness is, we have to understand what hope is in just a few minutes in the bible we're going to read about uh, the word hope in the greek language but it's the word elpis e l p i s and it literally means that you are expecting something to happen that you want to happen you have a you have an expectation but that expectation is accompanied by a desire you're desiring something to happen whatever it is with hope you're you're looking forward to that webster's dictionary says that hope is a belief Think about this. A belief that something good may happen. It's not guaranteed to happen, but you think it may. And just the thought that it may happen gives you that hope. It gives you that excitement about the future. Hopelessness, on the other hand, is a belief that something good won't happen. So you look out into the future, and you don't see anything good happening. And that's that's hopelessness. And the Bible says, now listen to this verse out of Proverbs chapter 13, hope deferred, Makes the heart sick. And so when you lose hope, you have nothing in the future to look forward to. Normally that's caused by, you know, something bad happens in somebody's life. They, they go through something, maybe a death, maybe a divorce, maybe a disease, maybe some disaster of some kind. And because of this thing that has happened that's bad, you're no longer able to look into the future and see anything good coming from it. And that's when hopelessness sets in, and that can be a downhill spiral if we don't know what to do with it. So, if you'll open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 24... I want us to see the lives of two of the disciples of Jesus. Now, these two men were not in the 12 disciples. These were two different disciples. Remember, Jesus had a lot of followers, a lot of disciples that weren't in the 12. And these two men were part of that group. And they had been hoping that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he had come to save them from Roman oppression. That was the concept of the Messiah back in this time. And so after he had been crucified they began to lose hope and they thought our conqueror is now dead. And so Jesus, what does he do? He, on the day of the resurrection... Not very long after he had been up out of that tomb, he begins to pursue these two men as they're traveling away from Jerusalem to a city called Emmaus. And so let's just begin and notice how the story unfolds. Uh, Luke chapter 24, now the first 12 verses talk about the resurrection. And beginning in verse 13, we read about these two hopeless guys. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, just think about what's happening. These two men have lost hope that Jesus is the Messiah. And because of that, their heart is sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. They're sad. They're depressed. They're discouraged. And so they're leaving Jerusalem. We would say it this way. They're leaving the city of God. They're leaving the other disciples. They're leaving the people of God. And really, they're leaving where Jesus was. They're leaving the presence of God. And that's what happens today. A person gets hopeless, and that spiral begins to go downward and downward. And they say, I have nothing to look forward to. And so what happens? They begin to leave the house of God. They begin to leave the people of God. And they begin to walk away from God himself. And so Jesus on this day is seeking them out because he knows that they are hopeless. And it says in verse 14, And they talked, these two men, of all the things that had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. What did Jesus do? Jesus just sought them out. And he wanted them to know that he cared about their conversation. He cared about why they were feeling so hopeless. And I want to say to you today, you, there may be people here today who are, and I'm certainly there are people here today who are feeling hopeless and down and sad. It's interesting, last Monday when I started working on this sermon, I was going to preach this sermon today from the perspective of, hey, we all know people who are hopeless. And so this week what we need to do, we need to show them that we care We need to go to where they are, and we need to encourage them in their hopelessness. But the more I worked on this, and especially the more I read these statistics, I thought, no. I mean, we do need to do that, but what I need to do today is to talk to the people in this room who are having feelings of hopelessness and sadness and downtroddenness and discouragement, and and you don't see anything good. And the first thing I would say to you today is that Jesus Christ cares about you and the state you find yourself right now. And he cared about these men, and he went after them, and he sought them. But notice that when we're hopeless, we don't just need somebody who cares about us. I mean, it is good to know that somebody cares. Certainly Jesus cares, but we need somebody who will listen to us so many times when, when we're trying to help somebody who is hopeless or they're down, we, instead of listening to them, we give them a lecture. Or we tell them, well, here's your problem. Here's what you need to do. Here's why you're going through this. Listen, friend, if somebody's hopeless, they don't need a lecture. They need a Listener. They need somebody just to listen to them. And that's what Jesus did beginning in verse 16. And notice that on three separate occasions in this conversation, Jesus asked them questions. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be crucified or to be condemned and crucified him. Verse 21, but we were Hoping. Listen to those three words. We were hoping. And it makes me wonder how many today in this room and listening at home would say, John, I was hoping. We were hoping. We were hoping that our mother would be healed, but she died. We were hoping that we, the money would come in, but it didn't, and now we can't pay the bills. I was hoping the relationship would be restored, but it wasn't. Some of the girls here today may be saying, I was hoping that that guy would ask me to the prom, but he asked somebody else to the prom instead. I was hoping, but it didn't happen. I was hoping to be accepted into the college that I had applied for, but I got declined. I was hoping. Didn't happen. That's what they, they, we were hoping that he was the Messiah, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company, that is other followers of Jesus, who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And so they had heard that Jesus was alive, and yet their hopelessness Didn't allow them to believe that. They had the facts, but they didn't have any faith. Verse 24, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And so he's asking another question. What I want you to see here is... Jesus cared, so he, he pursued these men out of Jerusalem as they're heading down to Emmaus. These 40 days that Jesus spent on the earth after the resurrection and before the ascension, why did he spend those days on the earth? As far as I can tell, there's nothing in the Old Testament that said that Jesus had to stay on the earth after the resurrection. I mean, he had died on the cross. He had paid for our sins. He had come out of the grave. He had conquered death. Why didn't he just go straight to heaven right after he came out of the grave? I mean, it seems like to me, he could have. And I think he he could have done that because the work had already been done. But he stayed on the earth for 40 days. Why? To help people who were discouraged. His followers who were down. Next week, we're going to be thinking about how he helped Thomas with all of his doubts and all of his questions. Today, we're thinking about how he stayed around to help these two men who were so hopeless, so sad, so depressed. And that was moving them in the wrong direction. And sometimes that's what happens. But he didn't start out by giving them a lecture. He's just asking them questions. Why are you down? What's wrong? What are you thinking? What are you talking about? How do you feel? We don't need lectures. We need a listener. I can remember when I was a freshman at Baylor. I had ta- I was a religion major. I had just surrendered my life to the ministry in June before I started school there in August. And So my first semester I was taking a class. Introduction to New Testament, and Dr. James Landis was the professor of that class, a good and a godly man, and so the first test came around, and I took the test. I I knew when I walked out of the classroom that I had not done well. I mean, you know, you pretty much know if you know it or not, and I knew I had not done well, but when the grade came back, I had done worse than I thought I had done. I made a 51 on my first test, New Testament, religion major, studying to be a preacher. 51. Well, not long after that, I went home to visit my parents one weekend, and, you know, this was before cell phones, and so you, you weren't in as much com, you know, touch as you are today, and so you, you're kind of filling them in on everything. Well, how's school going? They said, I, you said you had a New Testament test. How did you do on the test? I said, well, to be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't do very well. I made a 51 on that test. Well, my dad, I told him that, he could have said to me, are you sure God's called you into the ministry? 51. Or he could have said to me, you know, I'm friends with that professor. This is an embarrassment to our name for you to make a 51 on that. He didn't say that at all. He said, let me ask you a question, John. How did you prepare for that test? How did you study for that test? And I told him what I had done. And he said, well, I think I see the problem. He said, get your textbook and let's go sit on the back patio. And we did. And for about an hour, he he opened my book and he showed me how to outline a chapter. And he looked at my book. He said, John, you have underlined every sentence in the whole chapter. I said, well, it all seemed important to me. He said, well, that's your problem. You've got to figure out what's the most important and highlight that, circle that. And then when you go back to study, just read what you highlighted and you'll get it. You'll do better. So I took his advice. It's funny. Yesterday, I I still have, I don't know why, but I've always hung on to my transcripts from when I was at Baylor. And I was going back through all of my, my freshman year. And by the time that semester was over, you'll be proud to know that I made a B in that class. I went from a 51 to a B. You'll also be glad to know that I made an A in tennis that semester. So that was <laughs> very important. And I made an A in speech. And so I thought, well, I don't know the substance. I don't know what to say, but I'll say nothing well, right? <laughs> because I, I made a 51 on the content. But anyway, he listened to me and he helps me. And that's what God does. One of the things you have to remember when you're down. Now, we all get down. Those statistics I was sharing earlier, that's about people who are down and they stay down. But we all get down. I sometimes have this. It sometimes in life, things can happen, and you just feel like a cloud of heaviness, of sadness, of hopelessness. It's just kind of like a fog sets in. And I've learned this When that happens, the best thing to do is immediately to call a timeout on life and to get alone with God and just start telling him how you feel. Now, he already knows, but there's something about just pouring out your heart to God because when you get finished doing that, you feel like, okay, now I've told him. Now I have been to the only person who can really help me through this, and I've had times, this doesn't always happen this way, sometimes that fog is very gradual and it's very slow to move, it's very slow in lifting, but I've had plenty of times in my life when I went to God like that, and I just began to pour out my heart to God and read a little bit in the scripture, and at the end, normally what I always say at the end of after telling God all what I'm going through, I just say, God, I just put this in your hands and I trust you with it. And as soon as I say that, that's when the fog normally lifts. Just, it's like I can trust him. And so the faith and trust in him, the hope in him, just helps that fog to lift right off. And so remember this. When you feel like, man, nobody understands how I feel. Let me tell you something. Jesus understands. You say, man, I don't have anybody to listen to me. You call your friends, and you, t- you know, and you just think, well, they're there, but they don't really get it. Let me tell you something. Jesus gets it. And you can just pour out your heart, and and just he'll listen to you, and he will begin to lift that fog. But the other thing I love about Jesus, the one one thing I was going to say that we need to do when we're trying to help people who are hopeless and sad, we not only need to show them that we care, we not only need to be a good listener, just let them tell us what they're feeling. Don't try to fix them, just listen to them. But at some point along the way, we need to help that person see Jesus Christ in the middle of their hopeless situation. There's something about seeing Jesus that that somehow, this is why our theology is so important. Some people say, well, don't give me any theology. Well, you, you can't live without theology. Theology, you know what the word means? It means words about God. Theology is what you believe about God. And so, what do you mean don't give me the? You have to have theology, and at the center of our theology, especially when we're going through a hopeless situation, is we must believe this, even and I could never say it enough even now, in this situation, God is absolutely and totally in control. You've got to believe that. Now that doesn't mean when somebody gets cancer, God calls them. God's not causing people to get cancer. That doesn't mean when your loved one dies that God has caused that death. That doesn't mean when a divorce takes place that God caused that. God would never want that to happen. But it does mean this. In this fallen world that we live in, sometimes these things happen. And the, the teaching of Scripture that God is in control doesn't mean that God causes all this stuff, but it does mean that God allows it. Now, let me take that one step further today. Because we, we say this sometimes. God allows it. God allows it. God. Allows. But God doesn't just allow it for no reason. God doesn't just allow tragedies and and, and, and bad things to happen in life to see how much pain we can take or how strong we are. God, anytime something comes into your life that causes you to feel hopeless, you've got to give yourself a wake-up call. You need like an aha moment to say, God has allowed this, and if he allowed it, he had a reason for allowing it into my life. Now, that reason, I, don't, I may not know what that reason is. See, that's what, that's what puts you on that quest for God. God, I do believe. See, you start with your theology. God, I do believe you're in control. I do believe you have allowed this. I have no idea why. God, please tell me why. God, what are you saying to me through this? God, how can I grow through this? How can I come on, out of this, on the other side of this, stronger in my faith, in my character, more like Christ? How can I after you bring me through this, be a better representation of you than I was before I had this problem. So that, put, that puts you on a, a seeking after God. Now, God's not going to answer that question immediately, most often, most probably He's not. Sometimes He might, but I mean, we're talking about here a seeking and a searching for God that may last for months and even years. God, what is it that you're doing in my life? Or It may come more quickly than that, but nonetheless, it comes when it comes. We have to seek Him and ask Him for that, and so we're trying to figure out where is God in the middle of this mess? Because if he's sovereign, he's in the middle of it. He's got some purpose. Remember this, in the Christian life, nothing is incidental, nothing is accidental, everything is providential. And anything that God allows into your life, he's sitting in heaven, even if it's something he doesn't like. But people have free wills, and we live in a fallen world, and things happen. God in heaven says, I can take this situation that threatens to destroy your life and put you in a downward circle, and I can turn it around, and I can bring so much good out of this that you yourself will be amazed at what I've done in your life. That's what God can do. Now, on this day that Jesus is talking to these disciples... And he said, ought not the Christ to have, you know, to have suffered all these things? And, and, and that he went through, and, and he's asking that question. But look in verse 27, because to me, this is where the story gets so interesting. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, I just wish it was a longer. I wish this verse was about five pages long, but it's only four lines in my Bible. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, these Jews, these two men, they thought they knew the Bible. The only Bible they had back then was the Old Testament, but they thought they knew it. And yet as Jesus is talking to them, it's obvious to him, these guys don't know the Bible as well as they think they do. They don't understand who I am. They don't understand who the Messiah is. And so beginning at Moses, now why did he say, beginning at Moses because Moses wrote the first 5 books of the Bible Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy and then all the prophets Isaiah Jeremiah and all the rest so he just got, what Jesus did he began in Genesis and he went right through Malachi 39 books in the Bible in the Old Testament and he began to explain to these two men where he was in the Old Testament you see, when we think about the Old Testament, we don't think about Jesus, right? We think about, now the Old Testament's about God and the New Testament's about Jesus. Wrong? Jesus is God. The whole Bible's about Jesus. In the Old Testament, we get glimpses, we get shadows, we get prophecies, we get hints. We see Jesus, but we don't see him very clearly. In the New Testament, he is clearly revealed. He's in the flesh. He's easy to see, but in the Old Testament, not so much. And so Jesus says to himself, if I can help these men to see me in the Old Testament and how I was prophesied about back then, then they will understand that I needed to suffer, that I had to suffer and be crucified to pay for the sins of the world. And the reason I say I wish this verse was five pages long, I wish we had exactly what Jesus said beginning in Genesis and all the way through Malachi. That would have been an incredible thing to have heard Jesus Explain to these two men where he was in all the Old Testament. We don't know what he said. We can only speculate. In my sanctified imagination, I can hear Jesus saying perhaps to these men, in Genesis, I'm the creator of the world. The very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm God, and I created the world. And not only that, in the book of Genesis, I am the seed of the woman. In Exodus, I'm the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, I'm the sacrifice for the sins of the world. In Numbers, I'm the bronze serpent lifted up on that pole. In Deuteronomy, I'm the prophet who's greater than Moses. In Joshua, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, I'm the angel who appeared to Gideon. In Ruth, I'm the kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, I was the one empowering David to defeat Goliath. In 2 Samuel, I'm the seed of David, and I'm the rock in an unstable world. In 1 Kings, it was my voice, the still small voice, speaking to Elijah. In 2 Kings, that mantle that Elijah passed down to Elisha, that symbolized my power. In 1 Chronicles, I'm the giver of every good thing. In 2 Chronicles, I'm the sender of revival. In Ezra, Jesus might have said, I'm the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, I'm the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, I'm the protector and vindicator of my people. He saved those Jewish people living in Persia when they had, there was an order to kill all of them. And you can just hear Jesus going right through all of the Old Testament, going through all those different books and, and saying who he was and all those things. Maybe he said when he got to Job, guys, do you know the verse where Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives? and his feet shall stand at last on the earth. I can hear Jesus saying, when Job wrote that, he was talking about me. Are you someone who has lost hope? 1 Timothy 1.1 tells us that Jesus is our hope. For more information on beginning a relationship with Jesus, please go to peacebybelieving.org slash findpeace. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond. As John continues his message, how do we help someone who has lost hope?